Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Glenn Scrivener. He's an Anglican minister and director of the charity Speak Life. He's the author of several books, including 321, The Story of God, the World, and You. He has a weekly podcast called The Evangelist Podcast. Most recently, he wrote and produced the Christmas short films Meet the Nativity, which you can find at meetthenativity.com. These short films are fantastic, and they present the meaning of the Christmas story in the context of how we often experience the holidays, which is running on empty and feeling like we're not enough. The films form the basis for lots of our conversation, although we talk about a host of other things. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you Glenn Scrivener. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. You are a pastor, rector of a, an Anglican church, right, in, in England, in the place where the whole movement started. Right. Yeah, the Church of England. So I'm ordained in the Church of England, and uh, I don't actually have a parish of my own. Uh, I'm not really grown up enough for that. I, I was a curate for four years, which is like a, a, a pastor with your L plates on, and I, and I did that for four years. And then. Curate meaning cure of souls, right? You're right. Learning the, I've got, you're learning to cure souls. That's right. Yeah. Which, you know, interesting psycho, psychotherapy is to be a doctor of, of souls. And, uh, I guess, yeah, to have the cure of souls is, is something like to be a psychotherapist. And, uh, so I, I did that for four years and I'm still ordained in the Church of England, but, uh, now I work for a, a charity full time that frees me up to speak in lots of different churches. Yeah. And what, tell me a little bit about the charity. So we're called Speak Life and, uh, we, we were founded in the 1950s as the Hour of Revival Evangelistic Association. Um, which is a, a name that is very of its time. And, uh, yeah, the, the founder was a, a big Billy Graham type guy in the UK and he did his crusades and they still called them crusades back then unashamedly. And, uh, he also had a big radio ministry. And, uh, so he did his thing for, for 30 years really. And, uh, and then I was only the second evangelist to be employed by this, uh, by this ministry. Um, there was basically a 30-year gap between him dying and then uh, the trust kind of uh, had a little legacy left and they decided to, uh, yeah, to interview for an, an evangelist and I got the job back in 2010. So I've been working for them and we changed our name a couple of years ago uh, to Speak Life and, and interestingly, you know, it was founded as a ministry of preaching and the media with uh, a lot of radio back then. And I guess we've, we've kind of continued that legacy. I, I do quite a lot of preaching and we do quite a lot of media as well. And that's, that's where we try to spend our time. Now, what's the job interview for an evangelist? Like, do they have an atheist there or somebody that's unchurched and like right. the first person that converts them <laughs> yeah. gets the job? I mean, what are, like, do they say, okay, yeah. let's role play? I mean, what, I mean, what was your competition like? <laughs> I mean, did you guys, did you have to line up? Hey, you know, my wife, uh, my wife, I uh, grew up in a church where this pastor had his notebook of souls he had saved, like all the written. Right? And wow. then I, I, so if someone renounces the faith, I wonder, do you erase them or what? 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 What's an interview like? I just I just show them the notches on my belt, Scott. Just the notches on my belt, and and that speaks for itself. All the, all the conversions. Uh, I it was it was uh, no, it was there was a whole panel of people asking me uh, tricky questions, trying to wrong foot me, but I, I I managed to trick them all. So. 
uh, got the got the job back in 2010 and haven't looked back. Have you seen the show The Crown on Netflix? Absolutely. Well, I've seen season one. I haven't yet seen season two. Season two, there's a really great episode where she's her uncle who um, was sort of renounced the throne and, you know, was a Nazi sympathizer. He wants to get back in on public life and she's pondering forgiveness. And Billy Graham is in town. And the queen is so taken with Billy Graham. And none of the royal family is, right? I mean, everybody right. is just like, the, the queen mother's like, I think it's awful for someone so young to have such certainty in religion. Yes, <laughs> like, right. And you, know, you see Philip, she invites him to preach at Westminster. And Philip is just like, so uncomfortable. And, and, wow. and, and he, you can tell that she, she's a woman of very sincere faith. Yes. And these conversations she has in the episode with Billy Graham are fantastic. Wow. I mean, they're just, um, it, they're wonderful. And it, it really, it, it paints, I mean, people, I, I think often, right, uh, both royalty and evangelists, right, can be harangued in media and all the, like, but it's yeah. the, the beauty of their conversations is just wonderful. I mean, paints a really beautiful human portrait of the souls connecting um, around wow. faith. Uh, I will have yeah. to watch that. I, I, um, I worked for a little while at All Souls Langham Place, which is a sort of a famous church in the, in the heart of London. And John Stott. Was that John Stott's? Yeah, John, John Stott's, Stott's church. church yeah. So author of, you know, 40 plus Christian books. And, and uh, he was still alive at the time. And, and uh, he was chaplain to the Queen as well and, and would speak very warmly of her, her personal faith. Uh, and, and I mean, she is the UK's greatest evangelist. I mean, every, every Christmas she has this Christmas message. It goes out at 3 p.m. And if you're a particularly righteous family in the UK, you do not open your Christmas presents until after the Queen's speech. This is how seriously uh, people take things. It's it's that sort of sense of delayed gratification, and and uh, you're you're able to wait until the Queen's speech. But it's such a fixture, and uh, and every year she she slips something in that's just beautifully, uh, yeah, beautifully articulates the good news of Christmas. You know, a, a couple of years ago, she she just. Um, Yes, yeah, she just talked about the the final uh, verse of a little child, oh, oh little town of Bethlehem, you know, oh holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. And she was she was preaching the gospel at Christmas uh, in a way that would put many uh, many Christmas preachers to shame, actually. So yeah, well done, the Queen. Well, we're blessed on this side of the Atlantic to have a uh, head of state that. Is making America great again. And also, we can say Merry Christmas. The secret police no longer. I mean, I'm just walking around saying Merry Merry Christmas Christmas. because we have a defender of the faith. Yeah. uh, 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 That's just, yeah, you know, I want to talk a little bit in in a couple of minutes about some, an interesting Christmas film that you've produced. But I want to ask you first, because it is interesting, right? There is, there is something, it seems like, going on in the United States, in Europe, where there is a kind of populist, yeah. nationalist impulse. And right. you see it with Brexit, I think. Right. You see it in the election of Donald Trump and in America's subsequent kind of pulling out of trade agreements and, and, and global enterprises that, you know, have kept, have been part of the post-Sort of War legacy of building a new world and, and, the, and then the post-Cold War kind of legacy. But I wonder, you know, in America, that movement has, is so shapes um, people's perception of Christianity, right. uh, particularly and especially evangelical Christianity, right. which gets a lot of media coverage, although you get a sense that the media doesn't 
quite get it other than sort of uh, the, the sort of positions that those sorts of Christians vote on reliably. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, has has this movement affected um, Christianity, evangelical Christianity in the in the UK mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. In, in, in similar ways? I mean, what, what is it like yeah. on the ground there in, in, in this kind of cultural and political moment? How does that affect life among well, it's interesting that, you know, Tim Keller, uh, a very famous pastor in New York City, um, just came out with an article in the New York Times to, to, to try to differentiate between evangelicalism as, uh, you know, a capital E evangelical voting block, uh, as opposed to evangelicalism as this kind of reforming movement within the church that's been, you know, around for centuries. Um, and it's interesting that that kind of differentiation, uh, in a sense, doesn't need to be made anywhere else but in North America. I think in North America, evangelical is uh, a voting block and has been appealed to and pandered to as a voting block, I, I guess, since Reagan, would you say? Sort of the moral majority? A little, of that? Yeah, I mean, it's 70s. I mean, it, it it's interesting. Abortion was the decisive issue okay. here. It, it, in the early 70s, lots of evangelicals were pro-choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, but people like Jerry Fall and the Moral Majority galvanized the abortion movement. And some of this also was, they had an agenda around segregation. Like they wanted mm-hmm. these sort of, um, like if you go in certain parts of the Southeast, there are these um, such and such Christian academy, which are really segregation academies. I wow. mean, after integration. But yeah, I think in the 70s, um, and, you know, famously Reagan said to um, like one of this group of evangelicals, I know you, you may not be able to endorse me, but I can endorse you. You know, and, and <laughs> right. uh, yeah, I mean, there was this kind of yeah. it's funny, too, because it's almost like evangelicals. What killed the main line in the United States was a kind of uh, left wing politicization where where church became one of the things that killed it was church became just identified with every kind of trendy left-wing movement and now evangelicalism has sort of in many sectors seemingly replicated it mm-hmm. on the right where people reject the faith because of they think well it involves certain political kind of things yeah. yeah 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 well thankfully in the uk there just aren't those political uh ramifications although you know more and more as we get our news from the states and you know and statistics like you know 80 percent of white male evangelicals voted for Trump and that sort of thing. You know, we do hear those statistics over here. So people people do hear through those filters if they're not particularly churched. But if you're in the UK and you're, you're a Christian of whatever stripe, um, you simply cannot predict who someone will vote for just because they're a Christian or because they're an evangelical. You know, in our churches, people are split right down the middle between, you know, labor and conservative and, and liberal Democrats, um, split right down the middle in terms of whether we're for Brexit or for, for the EU. So I, in, in, in a sense, I guess evangelicalism isn't a big enough movement to be a voting bloc to be pandered to. Um, and, and maybe that's a blessing that, <laughs> uh, but it's it's just not as politicized over here at all, which which is great. I'm very glad of that. I, I have a friend who uh, he actually married my prom date. I actually married them. I was the officiant at the wedding. But um, it, he's um, he told me that nobody would talk about their faith in an election of either oh, party. No. no one would make these. It just wouldn't. No. Um, it, it just it, it, he just couldn't imagine somebody. No. And even somebody like Tony Blair, who's a person of deep Christian absolutely. Faith, right? We don't you, you just do God. Hear about it. Yeah, the, yeah. It's f- famously his spin doctor. When when uh, Tony Blair was asked that question by a member of the media, his spin doctor just interjected immediately and said, "We don't do God," and that's become a really a really famous comment about UK politics. 
and it's absolutely true. You know, if you, you would absolutely hemorrhage votes um, to nail your colors to any kind of faith mast. But you know, it's it's yeah, it's 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 an absolute vote loser, which is fascinating when you think that in in America you've got separation of church and state absolutely written into your constitution, <laughs> and and yet politics is is you know absolutely full of faith issues. Whereas, you know, in, in England, you've got the, the governor of the Church of England is the queen, <laughs> and yet you've got a far more secular politics. That's just one of those deep ironies. Yeah, and if you were a Muslim in France, which is completely secular, mm-hmm. you'd have less religious freedom mm-hmm. than in England, yeah. which has a state church. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the laissez-faire in, in France is just, yeah, that's, that's, that's a really, uh, fundamentalist kind of secularism, which is, uh, yeah, hard to, hard to live with. And, and so for you as an evangelist who's also ordained in the Church of England, I mean, are you, are, you, you would say, say, hey, state church, good thing for us. I mean, I, I, would you rather have a state church than not have a state church? Um, I don't really mind. I mean, I grew up in Australia and the, the Anglican Church there, which I guess is an expression of the Church of England in Australia that is not um, established. Um, and yeah, so if if the Church of England was disestablished tomorrow, I would not I would not cry. I I, I wouldn't uh, mind at all. And, and I just think what's interesting is if you've got an intellectual issue with separation of church and state, it, it is just interesting that on the ground. What actually happens in the state church in the UK, if you want to call it that, is, is not this kind of politicization of the church. And it's, and it's not, you know, politics being, you know, preached too constantly by a whole bunch of angry prophets on the church side of things. Actually, what, what happens in, in practice, um, tends to be just, I, I think, a, a healthy, distinction of church and state in practice even though we've got an established church so i i don't get too head up about it but if if people want to you know get rid of bishops from the house of lords people can get rid of bishops from the house of lords i just think you know there's no such thing as a spiritual vacuum and at that stage the country then needs to figure out what it really does believe and what it's going to fill that hole with um and make sure that what it fills that hole with really is good for the nation um but yeah i'm 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 happy being in the church of england for now I'm rereading T.S. Eliot's notes toward an understanding of culture right now. And I mean, this is what he's addressing, you know, like the notion of Christian culture. And I find myself, when I was watching The Crown, hmm. embarrassingly sentimentally moved <laughs> at this head of state yes. and her, these deep acts of piety. Yeah. And, and, and again, it, she's sort of depoliticized, right? She's a nonpartisan head of state. And I found that, uh, I found this sort of longing for something like that. <laughs> again, I do have a head of state that's making America great again, and we won. We won the war on Christmas, so now we can go to war with yeah. North Korea because we've won the war on Christmas. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a. You know, did you think also? It seems to me that the lack of something like the fundamentalist modernist controversy right. in England, like the mostly evangelical Protestants I know from England, are uh, not skeptical about scientific endeavors they right. don't they're not reactive about evolution they're not react like they tend to not be reactive on the kind of hot button issues that still shape uh american conservative christianity right right and i think i think the, you know the majority of evangelicals in the uk are in the church of england and, and maybe that kind of has a, an influence i mean the, the church of england is kind of plays chaplain to the nation and in a sense cannot afford to be um, a, a, 
cannot afford to, I don't want to say be getter-wise, but, you know, cannot, cannot afford to uh, go off by itself. Um, we still do hatch, match, and dispatch. We still do the baptisms. We still do the marriage preparations. We still do the funerals. And if anyone in our in our parish, you know, wants a funeral, we do their funeral. You know, if, if they live in the parish, they can have, you know, a, a Christian wedding in our church. And, you know, we, we kind of play that role. And so... Um, so evangelicalism, certainly of the Anglican stripe, just can't can't really afford to separate itself off from the society in that way, and and I think that's that's largely for the goods that we maintain this this kind of chaplaincy to every single every single soul in our parish is kind of in our in our care, and you know, and as as I was ordained, and as the bishop laid his hands on me and gave you know gave me the cure of souls, it wasn't just the cure of souls for my tribe; it was the cure of souls, you know. For the nation, and in particular for the parish in which I would minister, and, and I think that's that's given our kind of evangelicalism a healthier kind of feel. I hope that's beautiful. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question: Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You've done something. You've um, produced this film called Meet the Nativity, right? Yeah. And I, it's, I mean, you you wrote the script, right? right? Yep. And this was produced by, I mean, none of the actors in it are Christians, right? I've just, I've since discovered that one of the wise men <laughs> is, a, is a Christian and, uh, and the, the mother, uh, the woman who plays the, the stepmother, she's, she's a Christian. Um, but in terms of, yeah, most of the people in front of the camera and most of the people behind the camera, uh, we're not Christians. Um, but basically, yeah, it's, it's a kind of an, an idea that I had listening to a podcast of yours, actually. Um, you, you mentioned a sermon by, uh, Father Raniero Cantalamessa. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chaplain to the, uh, to the Pope. He would preach at Advent and, and Lent to the papal house. What a gig, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what a gig. He's the, he's the one man who gets to lecture the Pope. So, uh, and what a beautiful sermon. It was, uh, I guess it was an Advent sermon from like 2015 or something. Yeah. Where he, he mentions a, a beautiful little, uh, you know, apocryphal tale, a legend 
of the shepherd who makes his way to, to the nativity. Um, and he's empty handed and he feels like a loser. He feels like an outcast. He, he brings nothing to the table. Uh, and yet precisely because he's empty handed, um, he gets given the Christ child because, you know, Joseph's hands are full of the gold and the frankincense and Mary's, you know, got the baby Jesus. And in order to receive the myrrh, she has to offload Jesus. So who does she give Jesus to? She gives Jesus to the empty handed shepherd who brings nothing to the table. And that's Christmas. And, uh, and as soon as I heard you mention that story, I thought, wow, we've got to, we've got to make that. We've got to somehow represent that, um, visually because, you know, in, in the last sort of six years, um, I've been doing little Christmas films. And so I, I've always got my ears, you know, pricked up, ready to, uh, yeah, ready to hear illustration ideas, ready to hear, um, ideas for, for these Christmas films. And when you said that, I thought we've, we've got to make that happen. Um, and then as soon as you, you have an idea of that scale, you realize it's going to cost money <laughs> and you realize you're going to have to get some good talent behind it. And so really, yeah, we, we were just looking for the best production company we could uh, to make this happen. And they didn't happen to be Christian, but that was okay. It was, it was important to us that we made it well and that it, that it looked right. And so that, that, was, the, that was the number one prior, priority. And I, and I think they really delivered on that. And, you, you know, the first video, you have this couple who are visiting uh, their his in-laws, right? Right. And are they married or is it just the boyfriend? No. I, I couldn't. No, they're not married. They, uh, yeah, that's what I thought. I thought yeah. they weren't married. Yeah. yeah. And you can tell he's like, he's got the experience of many, many people visiting um, in-laws, right. you know, uh, uh, that th th feeling insecure, right. inadequate. Right. Am I going to be accepted? Yeah. Well, actually, you know, uh, uh, in-law not visiting family at all at the holidays. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. family uh, for at least as many people. Right. If not, I'd say maybe majority of people. <laughs> there are so many wounds uh, yeah. and, and, you know, and, and unspoken things, you know, sores festering. And you're walking across broken glass oftentimes, right. you know, to do that, to go home with family for the holidays, right. you know, this thing that we ought to do. Yes. And, you know, he uh, he is just uh, he you could tell that there's all sorts of tension. You could cut it, you know, with a knife in the air. Yeah. And the family goes away to, to mass uh, and he's there by himself and huh. he stumbles right into this um, out into the sort of guest house or something. Yeah, the it's pool house. Of, yeah, the pool house. Yeah. Uh, and or do, I don't, I, I don't imagine pool houses in the UK. No, I, I know. I, you, you, yeah, you're right not to imagine them. They are they're exceptionally rare. So, uh, yeah, we, we basically looked for a, a house to, to film this in, and it had to be an intimidating house for the boyfriend to feel like he's a fish out of water. And so we, yeah, we found this sort of six million pound mansion in North London and, and the, the family, uh, actually go to All Souls Langham Place. And so that's, that's how I knew about this family. And they said, you can film, in our house. And so, yeah, the house is like one of the characters because it's meant to be intimidating him. And the, yeah, the fact that it has, you know, a tennis court and, and uh, a, a pool in this pool house is another thing that intimidates him. But he, he is our shepherd. He is our outsider who doesn't belong. Um, and yet, yeah, he makes his way down. He follows a star down the garden path and makes his way into the pool house. And uh, through the, the magic of cinema, um, arrives at the first century nativity. Um, yeah, in order to have this this same moment, and and I guess what we wanted to do really was to bring the story of the shepherd into the twenty first century. And between myself and Nate Morgan Locke and Barry Cooper and James Carey, sort of uh, uh, us four have kind of 
come up with this story idea, we, we kind of tried to think who, who is an outsider at Christmas. And we could have gone down many paths at that stage. We could have, um, talk, yeah, talked about all sorts of people who feel like outsiders, but, but we wanted to do a comedy really. And so our best way into a comedy outsider was the boyfriend who feels a fish out of water at his girlfriend's parents. And, uh, and so, yeah, so he's the guy who shows up empty handed to the nativity and precisely because he has nothing, he ends up receiving Christ, which, um, yeah, I, I think it worked well in the films. Yeah. And then, you know, it's interesting because you, you then see in a subsequent video, well, first up the, he's got like someone's bathrobe on and they're like, how do you have this? <laughs> you look so weird. And, yeah. and the, the rector comes over and this androgynous looking rector who's so, like, <laughs> like, awkward and he's, he's, he's awkward. He tries to hide behind the tree and all. I mean, all, and then his girlfriend is taking a pregnancy test. Right. And you know, she is, um, she's pregnant and he's like, I want to take you somewhere. And I'm so ready for this to be like a Narnia moment where, um, you know, he says, go in and see this and nothing's there. Right. <laughs> you know, like I'm thinking that he's going to be, uh, that he's going to like, they're going to think he's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and now she encounters the nativity as well. Right. So having had the idea for the boyfriend to meet the nativity, we then thought, you know, can we tell there's, there's three other 21st century characters here. Can they all meet the nativity in various ways? So episode two is the girlfriend and she's just figured out she's pregnant What's she going to do? And she discovers Mary. And in a conversation with Mary, um, yeah, she kind of realizes that, you know, yeah, basically the girlfriend says to Mary, look, this is not what I planned. And, and Mary says, well, we have our plans, but life is what you're given. And, uh, yeah, and Mary said, and, and the girlfriend says, this sounds terrifying. And Mary says, it is. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, so the girlfriend gets to hold the baby Jesus as well. And, and that's a lovely kind of redemptive moment. And then episode three, um, the mother who turns out to be the stepmother, you know, she's one of these neat nicks at Christmas who, you know, needs everything to be just so needs everything to be perfect. Uh, she goes and she meets the nativity and, uh, and again in the mess, um, she gets given Jesus and, and there's a lovely moment when she sort of says to the baby Jesus, you know, welcome to the mess. And, and I think that's, that's really resonated with a lot of people. Um, a lot of people feel like at Christmas they need things to be absolutely perfect, um, but actually when you think about the original Christmas, <laughs> it's Jesus showing up in a manger for goodness sakes. It's, you know, it's God. Yeah. God meeting us in the mess of our circumstances. Um, and all we can do is with our dirty hands say, welcome to the mess. Um, so that's kind of her moment. And then in the, in the final episode, we've got the, the potential father-in-law and, and, and he has who is the least sympathetic character. In, yeah. Uh, uh, aside from the androgynous <laughs> director, uh, 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 he is the least sympathetic character. Yeah. He's trying, he's, he's kind of channeling Robert De Niro in, in meet the parents. Um, yeah. Being that, that difficult father, uh, difficult. Yeah. He finds it difficult to let go of his child, Claire. And he has a, a meeting with Joseph who we can imagine would have difficulty, you know, letting go of, of Jesus into a dangerous world. And, and Yeah. And so the, the idea is that over these four episodes, these four characters get what they need from the original first century nativity, and it puts together their family for the 21st century. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the idea behind the whole thing. It's interesting. As, as I watched the videos, I was thinking of this passage in Robert Jensen's um, Brief Theology and Outline where he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and he says at the end of this chapter, and these were lectures 
originally delivered to undergrads mm. at Princeton, mm -hmm. many of whom were not Christians. And he's just kind of, you know, explaining Christian theology to them. And he says that my body is simply me insofar as I'm available to you, insofar as you can get at me. You can see me. You can touch me. If you get close, you can catch my cold. The body of the risen Christ, then, is fundamentally whatever it is by which he is available to us. So when we say in the Christian church that the bread on the table of the Lord's Supper is the body of Christ, we do not mean that it is a chunk of an organism. Mm. We mean that it is something available right. and that this is where the risen Christ is encountered. And, and I thought about that pool house and, and mm. it, like, mm. and, mm. and, you know, I mean, Jensen talks about what it means to be in heaven and heaven is just the created place where God dwells, you know, this, it, and, and then sometimes in heaven connects with earth and, and, and the veil is lifted. And, you know, and I thought that that pool house became where, where, where reality was available, right? You know, where where the reality of the Christmas miracle was available, and it was a beautiful thing, right? And simply to be given Christ, like simply to be given this baby, this child to hold in your arms, is is kind of the epitome of the self givingness of God. And what's been beautiful to me has been just just to reflect on how each of these characters just literally just got to hold the Christ child, and how that is enough to transform a life to 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 know that God has made himself available to you in just that way is yeah is absolutely transformative what's fascinating to me is in like in the comment sections you should never read the comment sections but um as people have kind of reflected on on the the videos there've been a number of christians who have been sort of upset um you know upset that Jesus is just portrayed as a baby. He grew up, don't you know? Don't you know he went on to become a carpenter? Like, there, was, there was literally this guy. Oh, yeah, no one, like, no one knows that. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> oh, yeah, we were presuming that no one knows. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. But it's just, it's just this idea Most that of the pictures of him, he's got a beard. <laughs> it's, it's just this idea that in order to save God from becoming as vulnerable as a little baby... They want to say, oh, but don't you understand? He became a 30 year old carpenter. And you're, you're like, I, well, I don't, if, like, if you want to protect the infinite majesty of God, I don't, I don't think that's helped you <laughs> to, to then say, oh, yeah, but, the, you know, don't you realize he was good at swinging a hammer? Um, but so often I, I think, you know, Martin Luther used to talk about the difference between a theology of the cross and a theology of glory. Mm -hmm. And for him, a theology of glory is this negative thing. It's this idea of the way you get to God is by climbing a ladder up to heaven. Uh, the theology of the cross basically says God comes down and meets you in the pit. Um, and so I think both Christmas and Easter preach that message to us. But how beautiful it, at, at Christmas that actually God, God meets us in utter weakness, in the mess of our everyday lives. Um, but I think so often Christians reveal themselves as theologians of glory in that negative sense because they, they don't want to focus on the manger. They want to, they want to say, they want to save Jesus from the manger and say, don't worry, you know, he, he grew up, he got a beard, he's a, he's a mature man, he can handle himself. And, and they always want to say, you know, don't focus on the manger, Jesus grew up. And I always want to say, no, no, no. In, in a sense, if you don't want to focus on the manger, realize he kept on stooping. Like that's the trajectory he's on. Not that he grew up from the manger, but that he kept on shrinking, that he kept on becoming the little Lord Jesus. He kept on, you know, in the words of Philippians chapter two, this great hymn. Uh, describing the the trajectory of Christ, that he not only took on the nature of a, 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 a of a human, he took on the nature of a slave, who then became a sacrifice, and it's it's just this sense of God coming down and stooping, 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 suffering, bleeding, and even dying on a cross. 
Um, but that I think gets revealed at Christmas. Like, what is your reaction to Christmas? Is it, is it that you don't want to focus so much on this small little Lord Jesus? Or is it that you embrace this little Lord Jesus, realizing that he's made himself little for you, he's made himself available for you. And as Robert Jensen kind of says, that you know, to have given himself bodily to, to us like that is to give us everything. Like literally you've received everything in receiving him. And, and if all he has done is, is show up as a little child, then what does he want from you except that you draw near, you know? Uh, yeah, so I've just loved being able to present some of that visually. It's interesting that um, Chesterton in Orthodoxy says, you know, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. No, but the Lord thy God may tempt himself. And he starts talking about Gethsemane mm -hmm. and Jesus praying Gethsemane. And, and then he talks about the cry of dereliction on the cross. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, no, let the revolutionists choose a creed from all the creeds and a God from all the gods of the world, carefully weighing all the gods of inevitable recurrence and of unalterable power. They will not find another God who has himself been in revolt. Nay, the matter grows too difficult for human speech, but let the atheists themselves choose a God. They will, they will find only one divinity who ever uttered their isolation, only one religion in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. Yeah, right, right. And the presupposition of that is the manger, right? Right. It is, I mean, that all of us, right, most of, if, if, if a modern psychology tells us anything, and I think it tells us a lot of things, that so much of what, of who we are, the best and the worst, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the, and the compulsions and the things that keep us in bondage and frustration, and, you know, are, the formation takes place in like zero to two. Um, <laughs> You know, that right. when we have, really, when we're really powerless to, to engage any of it, right? We're, we're passive. And even Mary is passive. I mean, there's, there's mm. the whole way God comes into the world, right? Eliminates this kind of human will to power. And, and we, and all of us are, are, our own personalities are formed out of the matrix of our powerlessness. And to know that that right. is the beginning of the story. Right. Um, of God made flesh. Right. You know, I mean, it's Luther's great old line, you know, no other God have I but thee, born in a manger, died on a tree. And, you know, and if that's not what God's like, then I'm not interested, frankly, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. You know, I, I always say in my preaching, and, and you know, my job is really to address mainly secular people, mainly those who don't believe, is, is I, I kind of say to people, look, I'm not, I'm not generally interested in spirituality or religion, and I've just found my brand called Jesus. It's, uh, I'm a lot more like the, the woman who's just always been against the institution of marriage, but then she meets a guy. And then maybe she ends up marrying the guy. You know, why? Because she now believes in religion. She now believes in marriage. No, she believes in him and he's kind of converted her. And, and really it was a case of me in my early twenties kind of reading through the gospels and encountering in Jesus this, this one who would stoop and serve and suffer for me and thinking to myself, you know, if that's what God's like, count me in. You know, if, it, if that's not what God's like, then, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure the concept of a deity is going to sustain me through the valley of the shadow of death. Um, and I probably wouldn't be any kind of religious believer, but if it's this one, you know, no other God have I but thee born in a manger, died on a tree, then yeah, count me in, sign me up. I, w I want this God. You, you have like an accompanying book called Four Kinds of Christmas, right? Right. For the video. And, um, you say that there's the Scrooge mm -hmm. who says, uh, darkness is all around. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be act accordingly. Mm -hmm. There's the shopper who says the light's going out. So let's celebrate what we can. Mm -hmm. We've got the Santa who says darkness. What darkness? Um, they kind of see light everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then the stable, um, the manger kind of Christmas, mm -hmm. which preaches the original message. Here, darkness is taken seriously. It's not denied. 
Mm-hmm. But by entering into the darkness, we're offered the true light, right? There's a real, right. it's not by denying the darkness, no, no, but by exactly. accept, it's again, it's Luther's theology of the cross. He talks about theologians of glory see past what's there, right? They right. see that with the, right, a theology of the cross sees what's really there. Right. Um, and that's the hope, right? Being right. able to deal with reality, not a reality we wish, but the reality on the ground. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah, are, are yeah. These, do these correspond to characters you see that's like uh, in the film? Not so much, but I, I do see it corresponding to you know the debates that we tend to have about religion. I, I think the debates we tend to have about religion are between the shopper and the Santa. You know, so so I think when most people hear about a religious person, they think of the Santa person. And when I talk about the Santa person, I'm not talking about someone who believes in there's a fat man at the North Pole. Uh, it's someone who believes there's some kind of deity, but they're essentially like Santa. You know, he's this God is this distant individual, high on power, low on personality, who might show up, you know, once in a blue moon, who you give your requests to. And, you know, whenever I, whenever I encounter people who tell me, Glenn, you know, your time is wasted on me. I'm not, I don't believe in God. I always say to them, well, which God don't you believe in? And they end up describing some distant individual, high on power, low on personality, who, you know, who might give you good things if you're a good boy, or they'll give you, you know, coal in your stocking if you're a bad girl. And, and at that stage, I just say, well, I don't believe in Santa either, <laughs> you know, um, but, and I think, I think in the culture, we, we either, you know, you, you either have this religious person who's a Santa figure, basically, who believes in the distant God, or you default to the shopper, which is just, you know, we are biological survival machines hurtling through an insignificant, you know, universe towards eternal extinction. Um, but, you know, Starbucks has a new flavored latte, so Merry Christmas one and all, you know, and, and you just. <laughs> Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And, and, and I think what I see is a debate between the shoppers of the world and the Santas of the world. And the whole time I just want to say, can we remember the stable? Because the, the stable takes the darkness seriously, but like genuinely offers you hope. There's, there's someone who has met me in the pit and will walk, will walk with me through the valley of the shadow and out into feasting joy. Um, so that's, that's the God that I always want to, you know, keep on preaching to people. As you engage in this work of of evangel evangelizing and you're trying to spread the faith, do you know this? I mean, what do you think is our ways of telling the story that in years past have been popular and prominent and don't resonate anymore? And what do you find in your own experience? Res- now, and again, every encounter is unique, but what across your own experiences and encounters, what what themes do you find that have continued resonance now i mean i mean jesus (laughs) so um i mean my favorite my favorite kind of evangelistic books are things like you know there was a book came out a couple of years ago over here in in england called um unapologetic by francis buffett fantastic fantastic book right fantastic you know and i mean he's two he's two really standout chapters for me um one on sin um, the, you know, what is it, the human potential to really, you know, mess things up? Let me, let me guess the second one. It's the Yeshua chapter. The Yeshua, right? yeah, the Jesus yeah, chapter. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I, I, I think that's one of the best. I think I said this recently somewhere, like that, Jensen's way of summarizing Jesus theologically is one of the most compelling I've found in his pre And I think Spufford, right. if I was just, if somebody said to me, what's Jesus all about? That's the thing I, that wasn't familiar with the story. That's the thing I'd give them. Yeah. I mean, I think right. that. I think that his chapter there is masterful. Yes. And there, I mean, there are things I disagree with in that book. And, and, you know, if I gave it to a friend, I'd want to, you know, chat, chat to them about it. But 
interestingly, his God chapter, as it were, kind of left me a little bit cold. Um, God was sort of, you know, the, the, the shining light who is, you know, everywhere present and that sort of thing. Um, whereas actually his Yeshua really did blaze <laughs> really, and really did shine, shine his light. And so, um, yeah, so, so what I find, what I find compelling and what I find works is, is constantly to challenge this idea of, you know, the God you think you already believe in or don't believe in. Yeah, yeah, let's leave that to one side for a second. Can I just reintroduce Jesus to you? You know, here is this guy and, you know, and quite often I'll, I'll just get, you know, John's Gospels into everybody's hands and literally I could be looking out at a room of like 500 people and I'll ask the, I'll ask the, the Christian Union at the university or whoever has invited me in, can you, can you pay for everyone to have John's Gospels in their hands? And I'll just open up and we'll have a look at John 1 and I'll just say, look, if Jesus is the Word of God, that means he's the explanation of God. Okay, so let's, let's see this picture of God that John's going to give us and let's turn the page. Chapter 2, Jesus goes to a party and he brings wine. That's interesting, isn't it? And then let's turn the page. The very next thing he does, he goes to a temple and he brings a whip. This is an interesting God. You know, he goes to the party and he brings wine. He goes to the temple, he brings a whip. Is this the kind of God you could believe in? And literally, it's, it's just representing Jesus to people and saying, yeah, 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 I know, I know the God stuff. Yeah, 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 I know the religion stuff. But can we, can we seriously talk about this guy? Because this guy is compelling and has an attractiveness all his own. So that, that's really what I, what I try to do. Um, and in terms of like resonances, it's, it's interesting. I, I've got a, an evangelistic outline called 321. Um, I'll tell you what the three and the two and the one refer to in a second. But, but basically, you know, in, in the book, I basically say, look, Christianity is this weird house and it's got all these different bolt on kind of rooms and you can hear the kids squabbling upstairs and it's, it's an imposing place and it might not even be a particularly attractive place. I don't know what you've heard about this house, but I'm just flinging open the door and Will you just suspend your disbelief just for a minute and I'll, I'll stick the kettle on and we'll have a cup of tea and let me give you the grand tour. And in a, in a sense, I kind of think introducing people to Christianity is a lot more like that. It's a lot more like hospitality and saying, can you just step into this, you know, strange new world of the Bible, as Karl Barth would call it? You know, this, this, this really weird thing that might not resonate with you at all to begin with. But then as, as I kind of introduce the Christian faith to people, I do it according to three and two and one. And three refers to a truth about God. God is a loving union of three. And actually I unpack the Trinity there. And then the truth about two, the world is shaped by two representatives. And I talk about Adam and Christ. Um, and then one is a truth about you. You know, um, you are one with Adam, be one with Jesus. Uh, and so it's union with Christ. And in a sense, I've kind of picked the three weirdest, non-resonating, <laughs> um, uh, you could think, obscure doctrines that Christianity has ever come up with. And yet what I try to do is say, well, let's press into this truth about three, the threeness of God. And when, when you get it, I think we press through the weirdness and on the far side, you get you get something that resonates far more deeply because now don't you see why love is the most important thing? You know, now don't you see why personal relationships are, are just the epitome of, of, of life? Um, because God is persons in relationship. Don't you see why persons in relationship is ultimate? And, uh, and so actually, do, do you know, do you know Peter Lehart's book, the Trinity? Oh, love it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I just, as you were saying, I mean, I, I remember reading that a couple of years ago. I thought this is so, this is such a great dis description of the world we live in, right. whether he's talking about, 
sex or music right. or rhetoric or right. and and this paracoret this kind of interpenetration of the one and the many right. that seem to make sense of right. most of everyday reality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Colin Gutton's The One, The Three, and The Many was just a, a huge book for me. I mean, I studied politics, philosophy, and economics a, a, as an undergraduate, and I kind of read that book straight out of, um, you know, thinking about the history of Western philosophy, and I wish I'd read Colin Gutton's book first and just seeing how the trinity absolutely kind of uh, dissects and then makes sense of the history of western thought and the and the difference between the one and the many and so he was one of the most creative uh, theologians i, I mean know. he died too early i had Probably. lunch with him about a year before he died he wow. was here in princeton i mean he was just such a wow. genuinely beautiful soul but i mean his work i he, i mean he really I, I felt like he he took theology on the ground into the world and yeah it, it was yeah, I I that book I think is fantastic yeah yeah. I agree. yeah yeah and so and that's kind of infected me and I guess when I wanted to start articulating you know if I was to go back to basics and explain the face to an unbeliever you know where would I where would I begin and actually you know the the way three two one is structured you begin with Jesus and Jesus introduces you to the kind of God who is a, a loving union of three and. And, and so, yeah, and so my, my way in is really to, to point to Jesus and just to say, well, what, what vision of God, the world, and yourself does Jesus give you? And to begin with, it's weird, it's nuts, it's crazy, it's, you know, it's, it's not what you would have dreamt up. But I think you press into these, these visions of reality. And on the far side, I think life becomes, the world becomes a lot more familiar to you, not just Christian theology, but the world itself becomes more familiar to you. So my, my whole thing with, with evangelism, if you want to call it that, is, is not, we don't build a stepping stone, you know, kind of approach, you know, here's your house over there. Here's my house, the Christian house over here. And let me try and, you know, figure out what the neutral ground is between us. And let me try to, you know, if you believe this, then what about that? And if that, then this. And then it's a hop, skip, and a jump to Christianity. Um, so I don't want to build stepping stones. I don't want to throw stones at other people's houses. I just, I just want to open up our Christian house and just say, have a look. I know it's weird, but stick with me because there's good news here. So basically what you're saying is you need, like, and I think this is a real, well, for, I mean, a lot of developments in modern philosophy have told us this, right? That there aren't neutral places to start and think. Right. That everybody starts from. So you're not saying, "Hey, let's let's meet in the middle." And you say, "Hey, look, can you try on right. the inner logic of this way of being?" Right. You know, just just like you know, you you could try on the sensibilities of a film or a novel or another exactly. culture, or exactly. can you try that and then see if it doesn't resonate? If you might want to live here a little while, if you might want to stay. Yeah, and well, yeah, and that's a what, what to you is the is the thing that's hardest, the question or or issue that leaves you scratching your head that consistently is the hardest thing that people who are resistant to uh, engaging faith or its possibility. I mean, what do you, are there things you find consistently that that are tough in the here and now? I mean, the biggest issue is just apathy and and people. Um, people aren't asking questions. You know, it, it used to be said of evangelistic books written sort of 20 years ago that they were answering the questions that no one was asking and, and, um, and the questions have, you know, shrunk since then. And, and so, so apathy is, is, you know, the, the major issue. And, and then, you know, I, I guess, um, the, the kind of why isn't it obvious to me? 
you know, so if, if, if a guy comes to you and just sort of says, look, I, you know, I'm open to there being some kind of God, some kind of spiritual reality. Um, I've searched after God in this way or this way or this way. Why is God not obvious to me? Um, and at that, at that stage, you know, I, I do kind of, um, fall back on what you were kind of mentioning, um, earlier about, you know, if, if, the kind of God who shows up in this world is the kind of God who can be, in a sense, reduced to a manger and then allows himself to be excluded at Golgotha. If he is that kind of God, um, then I have an intellectual kind of framework in which to understand how God can feel absent to people. Uh, but that still doesn't, you know, solve a person's existential problem. <laughs> you know, if, yeah. if they're crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, I've, I've, I've got the intellectual framework for saying, yeah, I know a guy who said that too. And, and preaching to them, the, the God of the cross is the beginning of an answer to that. Um, but I guess that issue goes much more, yeah, much, much deeper than that in a, in a personal and existential way. And I wish I wish I had a way of solving that for people, but I, I, I guess you know you you fall back on Romans chapter ten says faith comes by hearing, um, and and so it, it always just is that sense of you love people and you're hospitable to them, and you say and yeah, and can I can I continue to invite you into this world in which maybe even your sense of godlessness makes sense, um, yeah. Glenn, thanks for talking with me, and I hope uh, many, many more people see the film, and uh, blessings in your work. Thank you so much, Scott. It's great to be on. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great check it out spread the love and goodness if you've found it here also if you could go please 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 it takes like 60 seconds go to itunes and write a review and give it give a rating to the podcast it really really helps especially as things are getting off the ground and if you want to consider becoming a patreon sponsor you can just go right to the link on the podcast page giveandtake.fireside.fm you can find all the information there Thanks again to Glenn for coming on the podcast. Please go to meetthenativity.com and check out the films he's written and produced. And thanks again to you for listening to the podcast. Until next time, friends, fare thee well and happy holidays.